right? If, if you have your Bible with me, please turn uh, to James chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 9 through 15. Uh, keep your finger there, actually. We will uh, turn to Jeremiah 9, uh, verse 23 and 24, before we go to our sermon passage, James chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 9. So Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. Uh, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, uh, this is God's holy, infallible, and abiding word. Give your full attention to it. Uh, Jeremiah 9, beginning in verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's turn now to James, beginning in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord our rock, and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know it's been a while, uh, so let me remind you what James has been up to. Uh, James has been juxtaposing different kinds of people. Uh, in the beginning of the letter, he contrasted the one who endures and becomes mature uh, he prays for wisdom and so receives wisdom uh, over against the person who doubts, uh, the double-minded man who's unstable in all his ways. Uh, in this section, James is again contrasting certain kinds of people, uh, this time between the poor and the rich, uh, between those who endure temptation and receive the crown of life, over against those who are lured away into sin and death. Uh, so this morning, I want us to hold on to this simple idea. 
that we do not boast in our circumstances, but in the God who is overturning the world. Uh, we do not boast in our circumstances, but in the God who is overturning the world. James starts with a simple urging. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Uh, I like the way the NET translates it. It says, now the believer of humble means should take pride in his high position. Uh, James will use this word lowly uh, again in chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, it's a principle he picks up from Proverbs uh, chapter 3. Uh, I think we're all familiar with it. Uh, James says uh, in chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, the humble there is the same lowly believer here uh, with humble means. Uh, James's focus here seems to be a person in poverty uh, because he's the opposite of the rich person in verse 10. Uh, this believer is lowly in the socio-economic sense. He's broke by society's standard. He has close to nothing. He struggles to put food on the table if he even has a table. Uh, he, 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 is, he is poor. Uh, the poor uh, made up the majority of the church early on. Uh, we're, we're told by historians uh, that it was mostly the poor who came to embrace the teachings of Jesus. Uh, you get that sense from our assurance of pardon earlier, where Paul said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It doesn't mean, however, that there aren't any rich, wealthy believers with economic and social advantages in the church. Uh, Paul says, not many of you were. By implication, some were uh, wealthy and of noble positions and so forth. Uh, some believers today have that advantage. Uh, so riches doesn't necessarily mean someone is outside of the kingdom. Uh, but more often than not, God calls the poor uh, because God loves to call those with humble means, the outcasts, the nobodies of society. Uh, James is calling the poor to boast in their exaltation. Uh, they're supposed to brag about their high status. <laughs> what in the world? Uh, they're low, but they're supposed to take pride in being high. Uh, James is being ironic, of course, uh, because the poor don't have an exalted status. They're low. They're the nobodies. Uh, they're the overlooked and marginalized. Uh, so what then is this boasting business about? In a word, it's about joy. Joy in the midst of their economic and social trials. Yes, um, the poor have nothing but they are undergoing change. Their lowliness is producing lasting endurance in them. 
God is testing them that they might be complete and lacking in nothing, James says in verse 4. The irony is that their poverty is a means of their lifting up because God is using it for their good. God is exalting them in their poverty and lowliness. Uh, What kind of boasting is James talking about? Uh, This is not about pride or arrogance. It's not about triumphalism. It's not to say, look, I am better than you. It has nothing to do with conceit and snobbery. It has everything to do with confidence in the God who lifts up the lowly. I'll I'll put it like this. This boasting is an expressed devotion to the God of reversals. It's taking joy that God will never fail to exalt those who are lowly, those who are poor. And here's what I want us to see. Uh, Poverty is a form of testing. It is a difficult trial. Uh, Anyone who's ever really struggled financially knows this. Uh, Poverty is incredibly stressful and straining. Uh, Poverty makes us feel like failures uh, because that's what our culture says about the poor. They are unworthy. Uh, So when one's worth is found in riches, There's pressure on the poor, those who have nothing to chase after them. That's the American dream. After all, uh, we tend to see the prosperous as the worthy ones. Uh, But James isn't simply addressing the poor. Uh, He's also talking to those who are spiritually, spiritually low. He's talking to those who know the grim reality of life and are acquainted with heartache, pain, and grief. Uh, Poverty might not be uh, their trial, but they know the trials of loss and suffering and even death. And so now James turns to the rich person and tells him to also boast, not in his exaltation, but in his humiliation. Uh, This is a strong warning to those in high positions, to those with lots of resources and money. Uh, James, again, is being ironic. Just like the lowly person who is called to boast in their exaltation, those who are high should take pride in their lowliness. It's the opposite boast of the poor. Uh, But it's kind of the same if you think about it. Both are to boast, not in their stations of life, not in their poverty or riches, but in the Lord who is able to lift up and bring, and bring down. Uh, this is what the Lord says in our Old Testament reading earlier from Jeremiah 9, uh, where it says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in all these things I delight, declares the Lord. Uh, James, James' point is that our boast should never be in our circumstances, but in the Lord who can reverse our circumstances. I'm going to say something that might be shocking to you, 
uh, wealth can actually be a form of testing. It's a different kind of testing than poverty, but it is a test. Having riches can be a real trial. Uh, boy, I know that sounds crazy. Uh, what in the world do I mean by that? Well, riches have a way of alluring us. They're powerful. Uh, that's why the Bible doesn't mince words when it comes to the alluring power of wealth. Uh, Jesus famously says, uh, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, money can enslave us in ways we are not aware of. Uh, but what do we tend to think? We tend to think that money will free us. We think it will liberate us. But actually, it is better to be poor and have nothing than to become servants of money, than to be ruled by our wealth and possessions. Uh, Paul says our appetite for money can actually cause us to walk away from God, uh, which is the same thing as the rich young ruler. Uh, that's how powerful money can be. Paul says in, uh, in 1 Timothy 6, for the love of, God, uh, of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, with many pangs. Uh, chew on that for a second. Craving money leads to destruction. It can make us wander aimlessly further and further away from our Lord. And it, and it even makes us um, bring pain onto ourselves. We pierce ourselves when we hunger for money. Uh, remember what James is all about. It's all about wisdom. A life devoted to wealth isn't wisdom. It's a life of foolishness. It is anti-wisdom. And so according to James, the rich who will not boast in his humiliation, in his lowliness before God, will quickly find himself fading away. He will become like a flower of the grass, uh, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, James probably has in mind a passage like Isaiah 40. Uh, Isaiah says of people's transitory nature, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. You know, just like that, a rich person who will not humble himself will fade away. When his faith is tested, his faith is scorched up. It withers and dries up into nothing because he's actually relying on his riches. He thinks of himself as self-sufficient and not in God's enduring word. Uh, that's why Isaiah goes on to say, um, I said it right after uh, we read our passages, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God uh, will stand forever. Uh, check out what James says about the flower that passes away. He goes on to say, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. How obsessed is our culture with wealth and external beauty? 
Our eyeballs are bombarded with the world's beauty, with shiny and glitzy things. We are far too easily seduced by looks and enchanted by material goods. Why are we so obsessed with them? I mean, this is why the world um, operates this way. It is the way of the world uh, to be busy pursuing riches. They're like pirates always looking for treasure because for them, that's what life is all about, to gain more and more and more. Uh, but James says, all the treasures in the world mean nothing. They will fall apart and be destroyed. And so James says that along with those treasures and along with those beautiful things, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Uh, the psalmist puts it this way, the, wicked, the way of the wicked will perish. And so how crazy is it that we spend so much time chasing possessions and beauty when at the end of the day, such things won't last. When it's all said and done, they will rot and be burned up. And so, so will we too, if they become our life's pursuit. Uh, James turns his attention to the blessed person. Uh, he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, this language of blessedness or happiness should be very familiar to us. Uh, it certainly would have been familiar to James. Uh, I'm sure he has countlessly thought about his brother's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we read it earlier, Pastor Brett did. Um, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed, blessed. Uh, we know those as the Beatitudes. Uh, but of course, James was familiar with the wisdom tradition of Scripture. Uh, you can hear James reflecting on Psalm 1. Uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Uh, James was also steeped in the prophets uh, who used this blessedness language as well. Uh, my point is that it's everywhere in the Bible because it's important and we need to take notice of it. Uh, notice what James says. Who is the blessed or happy man? Well, it's the one who remains steadfast under trial. It's the one who perseveres in his poverty and lowliness or whatever kind of trial. He exercises a deep commitment to stand firm while he's under trial. Uh, that's persistence and endurance. Even when he has nothing, he is happy uh, because he will not let go of the God who promises a great reversal in the end of all things. He chooses to believe that God is good despite his current circumstance. He's also happy uh, because he knows the crown of life awaits him. After he has endured life's trial, he'll have an expensive crown on his head. 
I mean, isn't that, isn't that a wonderful image? The poor who endure are promised to be crowned. Uh, crowns are weird. Uh, a crown is something lavish and extravagant. It has no other purpose than to show off one's status. The crown of life signifies that a great reversal has taken place, where the poor are made kings and queens, where the living dead receive eternal life. Uh, but notice that the crown of life is costly because James doesn't know anything about receiving the crown of life apart from embodied obedience, apart from remaining steadfast to Jesus under trial. Blessedness comes by way of steadfast faithfulness. And here's really what separates those who remain steadfast and those who fade away. Those who, who remain steadfast love the Lord. They love God. Love for God is the dividing line between those who remain steadfast and those who fade away. Uh, James, what James goes on to say is notoriously difficult. Uh, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's difficult because the word tempted is the same word for test in the Greek, uh, and James uses them interchangeably. Uh, but the two aren't the same. A test can be something that pressures us to go the wrong direction, uh, but it doesn't have to. A test can also be a trial, uh, as in verse 2 of this chapter where James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, the same word. Uh, it can be something that measures quality. Uh, it's, like a take, it's like taking a test um, in, for a class. There's nothing about the test that pressures us to go the wrong direction. Uh, it's what we do with the test. That's temptation. Uh, temptation is when we're pressured to cheat uh, because we want a better grade. Uh, temptation really pressures us to go the wrong direction. Uh, so James, for the first time, brings in an imaginary critic. This critic is having a hard time, and so he says to himself, God is tempting me. Uh, it's easy to relate to this critic, uh, because how many of us have thought uh, that uh, when we're struggling with sin? We often think that God is pressuring us to do evil. Why did you put me in this situation, Lord? Uh, you must be tempting me. But does God ever tempt us? Is he like the devil who tempted Jesus while Jesus was fasting for 40 days? Is he like that? You know, it would not only be unscriptural, it would be blasphemous to think that uh, because God is good and he's good all the time. God doesn't bring temptation. He delivers us from it. And that's why James says he, God himself, tempts no one. But does God ever test us? Does he ever bring trials into our lives? Well, all the time. 
Uh, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Or, or what about Abraham? God tells him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. That's a test, a trial, not a temptation. God, all, God also tested Israel in the wilderness. Uh, right after Moses delivers the Ten Commandments, uh, the people are scared to death. Uh, God can be terrifying sometimes. Uh, but Moses tells the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. He's come to bring trial to you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Uh, Peter says that testing, uh, the testing of the Lord is actually good because God intends to burn away the dross that the trials of life might purify us. So if God doesn't tempt us, where does temptation come from? Uh, James says it comes from inside of us. Uh, here's his reasoning. Uh, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Uh, Jesus says it like this in Mark 7. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Uh, notice that James and Jesus traces temptation not to God or even to Satan, though Satan does tempt us, uh, but James ascribes temptation to the seductive power of human desires. James is univocally putting the responsibility on us. Uh, this is actually very common in the Jewish world. Uh, they tended to focus on man's responsibility for evil in the world. Not that they denied evil forces, right, like the devil and the demons, but they set their attention on human culpability and responsibility. Temptation is on us. And I, I, could, I could hear a friend saying right now, let's take extreme ownership. Uh, that's what James is saying. It comes from within. Uh, the image is that our desires, our evil desires are going fishing. They're fishers of men but in a terrible sense. They put enticing things on a hook, things like wealth, power, affluence, success, sex, or whatever. Our sinful desires turn our trials into seductive temptations so that we can bite down and they can drag us down to the ground. Our evil desires are straight up mean. They're deceiving and merciless with us. They're bad fishermen, you can say. Our evil desires are about getting what we want or think we're deserving of. They put us inside, inside, and they put God outside. And caving into them is a deep mistrust of the Lord and an arrogant confidence of ourselves. I mean, this is the heart of temptation that God will not do us good, so we have to go and get it ourselves. Uh, but notice what James doesn't say. He never says that all human desires are bad or evil. That's not the point he is making, because there are good desires. The Bible is not against having desires. Uh, it is concerned about certain kinds of desires, desires that lead to sin and death. Uh, for this reason, we should always check our desires, right? 
It's what God said to Cain after he murdered his brother. God said to him, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You know, sin is like a wild animal waiting to ambush you. You need to be on the lookout. Uh, then James goes on, goes on to describe what happens when we give in to our evil desires. Uh, when we take the bait and are hooked, uh, it leads to sin all the way to death. Uh, actually, James describes it as a horrible birth story. Uh, he says in verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Uh, when we bite down on our temptations, our evil desires gives birth to sin. And eventually sin grows up. Uh, think about that for a second. What does something need to grow up? It needs nurturing. You need to feed it. You need to take care of it. Change its, its diapers. Uh, I'm learning that right now. Uh, because that's how it grows up. What are you doing with your sin? Are you babying it? Are you nurturing it so that it can grow up? Uh, because fully grown sin gives birth to death. James says. It's such a, a pregnant expression, uh, no pun intended, uh, because that's a crazy image if you think about it. Birth, death, it's paradoxical. Death by definition is the absence of life and birth is the emergence of life. And so what's James saying? Well, James is saying death will live in you if you continue nurturing sin, if you let it grow up, if you keep giving into your evil desires, if you keep biting down on temptations, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, so friends, whatever tempts you to sin, whatever you're struggling with, whatever temptation has you on the hook, run away. Run away as fast and as far away as you can. Don't play with the bait. Don't nurture your sin. Uh, I don't know what you're struggling with this morning, but I, knew, but I do know this. Jesus Christ has procured for you God's ultimate reversal. He has reversed your fortunes so that you don't need to pursue the world's riches nor do you need to give in to your temptations to, to have good in your life. Because Jesus owns all the riches of the world. And he is good. He's the rightful owner. Yet he became a man who had no place to lay his head. And so Jesus' earthly poverty means heaven's riches for you. Uh, Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for, the sake, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, Jesus deeply knows your poverty. 
He, he's intimate with your lowliness and sufferings. He even tasted death for you. And so his crown of thorns means the crown of life for you. His death has given birth to life eternal. He has reversed your fortunes. Uh, that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's a meal that represents our fortunes being reversed in Christ. It's a sign and a seal that our circumstance, circumstances don't have the final say. Because the Lord has reversed all of our fortunes. And he will one day lift us up and bring us to glory. So let us boast in him and not in our circumstances. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, uh, we praise you for drawing near to us in your word. Uh, we pray that you would use it to continue to shape us into the image of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, our God, uh, bless us and keep us. O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. O oh Lord, lift up your countenance upon us and give us peace. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.